0: okay so tonight we come back after we had a week off last wednesday night uh, to this topic called wounded healer this is part four and hopefully you got the handout that i emailed out uh, a couple days ago and uh, tonight we're going to take a look at the issue of suffering, and the topic that I want to talk about is why suffering. If we're going to lay our wounds upon the wounds of Christ, then we need to know a little bit about how suffering plays into the experience that we have in the course of this life. So uh, let's begin with asking the question why. I think all of us have asked that question on numerous occasions. Why God? Why did you allow this to happen? Why God did Uh, certain things go the way they did? Um, Is this any indication of you trying to teach me something, or is this something that is simply the course of what it is like to live in the world in which we live? But uh, I think all of us have asked the question, why, a number of times. And if you know anything of the scriptures, you'll also know that there is multiple times when Uh, different people in the scriptures ask this question. So in the world, there is a lot of suffering that will often cause us to scratch our head. And some of it might be personal within your family, uh, but it might be also on the newsreel. And as we watch the world and as we see it uh, go the way it goes, we often ask the question, why? And there's really no easy or simple answers to this topic that has been discussed for centuries. And that is the problem of evil. Uh, It is the problem of uh, the suffering that evil often produces. Now suffering can be of two different categories. One can be living in an imperfect world that we encounter disease or other such things. Uh, Others are produced by actual actions of individuals. And so I guess to begin with, we often ask the question why, because uh, sooner or later, we're going to meet up with some pain and suffering. And we're trying to, in this study on Wednesday nights, try to figure out how we lay our wounds upon the wounds of Christ and find healing and strength there. So what I want to do is I want us to begin this topic of suffering talking a little bit about decisions. I think decisions play a role in what we experience in the course of this life. Um, It is estimated, and I can't believe this is true, but this is what uh, professionals have suggested, that each day you and me make about 35,000 decisions a day. Now that seems astronomical in my mind, but I think what that involves is all the micro uh, choices that we make that lead to obvious decisions. So it can be a decision to stay in bed and shut off the alarm or get up. It can be a decision to first brush our teeth and then get dressed or step into the shower. There's just multiple decisions that we make during the course of the day. And there's even micro choices uh, that we are unaware of. So I'm, I'm using my hands right now to gesture. I'm not consciously making that decision to use my right hand or my left hand, but I make that choice. And my brain, uh, brain sends signals that says, you know, gesture with your right hand or whatever it may be. So decisions are a part of life. Some of them are micro, some of them are macro, some of them, are life-altering decisions that we make. And some of them are just as uh, careless as whether I want tea or coffee uh, tomorrow morning. And um, that might be an important decision for you. I don't know. But for some people, either one's fine. So when we think about how many people live in the world, uh, think of the complexity of every person on the planet Making approximately 35,000 decisions a day. If you add all that up, the math suggests that that's over 273 trillion decisions or choices that are made every day. And when we think about the problem of suffering, we need to encounter this idea of how does God work within our decisions? Does he abide by them? Does he override them? Does he resist them? And um, that's a lot of decisions uh, when we think about it. So the complexity of being human is the complexity of free will. It's the complexity of human choice. And the decisions that we make uh, can lend itself to experience blessing or it can lead to uh, certain Um, pains that we experience in the course of life. So um, free will plays an important part in how the world is run. And so how do we live with faith and hope in a world where even some few small choices can lead to bigger choices that turn into bad choices? And so decisions, I think, is a good place to start. So let me see if you have any comments uh, about that um, and decisions playing a role within uh, our daily lives. Any comments or questions? Okay, so if not, so now we come to this question, why? And, And if we understand that decisions play a part in most events in the course of life, Um, there are really no simple answers to why we experience what we experience. And even though it's human nature, I think, to speculate uh, why bad things happen to good people. um, And I think a lot of times people ask the question, well, why did God allow this to happen to me? And uh, many times people often wonder, did I do something wrong? Am I being punished? Um, is there a lesson that I'm supposed to learn through all of this? So I want you, if you have a Bible, to turn open to Luke chapter 13. And uh, this is an encounter that Jesus has as he uh, is talking um, with some of the people that are present in that moment. And I'm going to read verses one through five. And I think It plays an important part in understanding how all of this might work when we think about even the elements of suffering that these people encounter in this paragraph. So verse 1, Luke chapter 13, it says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So verse one is talking about some Galilean Jews that evidently were murdered by Pontius Pilate. We're not told the occasion, uh, but evidently Pilate must uh, have deemed that they were a threat of some sort uh, to produce this type of action. And then verse two, Jesus makes a comment about this incident. And he says in verse two, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? So Jesus asked this question. Do you think this came upon them because uh, the decisions that they made put them in jeopardy with the authority being Pontius Pilate? And so this, I don't know if it's a rhetorical question that Jesus is asking, or if he expected them to answer. Either way, we're not told the answers of the people. But I think if we can assume that the mindset of the day was that um, if you are experiencing bad things, you've done something wrong. Of course, that's the whole premise of the book of Job. The three friends of Job said, Job, you're experiencing all this trauma, you're experiencing all this trouble, Um, what is it that you've done? And Job says, I haven't done anything. I, you know, I've evaluated my life and I have not done anything to deserve this type of treatment. He lost his house. He lost his property. He lost his cattle. He lost his children. And um, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible encounter with uh, the plight that Job is in. And he has some friends that come along and the basic premise that they have is you're suffering you did something wrong you did something to deserve this and so that's kind of the cultural mindset that we see um, Jesus playing off of in other words there's two type of Galileans righteous Galileans and evil Galileans and and so is this encounter such that Um, because they are evil they experience this and you could you might say if these Galileans and in that time uh, there were Jews that tried to lead a rebellion and tried to overthrow Rome if they were involved in that we're not told that in the text but if they were involved in that uh, you might say well I guess they got what was coming to them in light of the fact that Rome didn't put up with any revolutionaries that would lead a resistance but Jesus doesn't say that. Take a look at the next verse. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. So he's very definitive in his a- answer. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, I don't understand kind of the undertow of that particular comment other than uh there is a suggestion that if they don't overcome this uh prejudice prejudice that of of thinking that every person that's suffering has done something wrong um there's some consequences and i'm not sure exactly what he has in mind then he goes to something else in verse four so that's one occasion and then he brings up a second one in verse four or those 18 So 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all of the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, definitively, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So those two taglines there, unless you change your mind about how you view suffering, you too will perish, um, which is an interesting comment. But I think The thing not to miss here is that Jesus is pretty crystal clear when he is saying that these people that died at the hands of Pilate, these 18 people who suffer some type of construction accident, I guess, a tower falls upon them and um, they pass away. uh, Neither of those people uh, deserve that. Neither of them were guilty of anything. And I think what we might suggest here is uh, that Jesus is saying that suffering happens and it isn't because these individuals did bad things. It's kind of the way life goes at times. And perhaps one of the thoughts that I, I thought about is maybe Jesus is using this occasion to try to overturn the cultural assumption and maybe that's what he's calling for them to repent of uh to repent of this cultural assumption that if you're suffering in some way it's your fault uh if you're being blessed in some way it's because God's favor is upon you so any any comments questions thoughts um that well that's a good question so the st said why does he say you two will perish he says that twice in these two stories and i'm not real sure uh, of what he is referring to here if he is talking about jewish resistance and trying to lead a coup against the roman empire perhaps then um, what he is suggesting is they will suffer the consequences of that but we're not told that in the text So, in other words, I think your guess is as good as mine. Okay. I don't, I'm not real sure. Any other, any thoughts on that from anybody online? Okay. So, we'll move ahead. So, what I want to do is, I want to talk tonight about three assumptions when we encounter this idea of decisions and choices and um the encounter of suffering in life there's three assumptions i think that can happen and we need to be aware of them uh we might be in agreement with some of them we might be in disagreement with some of these but at least we need to be aware of them and so um let's kind of move through this assumption number one is the the idea that god controls everything that happens so um This has to do basically with the question, how does God rule the world? How does God rule his creation? Um, What is the nature of his control over the world? Um, Does God control both good and evil things in the world? Um, And if he is in control of evil that leads to suffering, is he held responsible for that? Um, type of thing. So I think we we know that God could be in complete control of everything if he wanted to be. Um, but my feeling is that God did not set up the creation that way. I, I don't think God orchestrates every decision, every choice in life. Um, I don't think he's trying to orchestrate all 263 trillion decisions uh, that might be happening over the course of the day. Uh, if free will is truly a part of what it, it means to be human, um, many times those things are conditioned by circumstances, sometimes cultural realities um, hit us in the face. Um, you know, it can be everything from, you um, you know, circumstantial things uh, where someone doesn't pay attention and runs into your car and there's an accident. Um, there, it could be a cultural reality that uh, maybe we're polluting too much of the planet and maybe climate change is uh, a part of our own choice not to take care of the planet. So does God control in such a way that he overrides those choices the only thing i think you have to keep in mind with that is if god controls all choices all the time it's hard to get away from the fact that god has to bear the responsibility of a lot of the suffering that goes on in the world personally because he is the one that is micromanaging the the world so My own feeling on this is, I don't think God controls everything that happens. Uh, I think he allows us to have true free will. And because we're imperfect people, we make imperfect decisions. And out of imperfect decisions come consequences and results and that type of thing. So one of the things that um, I think uh, the way I look at it is if our choices are truly free, then The future has some flexibility that's baked into the way God allows the world to work. And that is um, God might have a foreknowledge of things, but I don't think he divinely controls all the things. I think he lets those things play out because he honors our free will. And you'll see on the last line of this uh, slide here. Uh, that God experiences human free will as possibilities, usually probabilities sometimes and certainties rarely. And uh, I think that's just kind of how it's baked in. And so when we ask the question, why God? Many times I think we are assuming, we are assuming that God controls everything that happens and um and i understand why we ask those questions i really do i think all of that comes instinctively but um but it does have it does have a consequence and that is if god is responsible for every decision every day then he has to bear the responsibility of the evil that goes on in the world and if that is true is he truly a good god you see there's a There's a consequence to that. So what are your thoughts on this? Assumption number one here. Any thoughts? Okay. All right, let's go to assumption number two then. So assumption number two is suffering is a part of God's will. Um, So there are certain, certain strands of Christianity uh, that believes that suffering is a part of God's plan for the world. In other words, let's come back to this control element here. Uh, and that is, if God controls everything and there is suffering, then somehow this suffering um, displays the glory of God. So I've given to you some subpoints here that if suffering is God's plan for the world within Calvinistic theology, and I don't know how well you know Calvinism or not, but basically Calvinism uh, exalts the sovereignty of God over every other attribute of God. And it suggests that um, God is in complete control of everything. There's never been a time that God has not been orchestrating things and even predestinating these things. Um, and what happens around us, no matter how mysterious it may be to us, somehow points to God's glory. And there's there are various shades of Calvinism. Uh, you might have a moderate or mild Calvinism, but um, hyper-Calvinism, uh, extreme Calvinism, suggests that is suffering in your life was predestined even before you were born, that God uh, foreordained even the suffering that you are going through or have gone through. And I and there's certain verses that are kind of used to to, to point to that type of uh, logic. And one of them is in first Peter chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. So, if you have a um, if you have a Calvinistic theologian, he would suggest or she would suggest um, that as the sufferings of Christ were predestined before even the creation of the world, so too uh, we go through things and God chooses those things. So, take a look at verses nineteen and twenty, chapter one chapter 1 19 and 20 uh so it says here uh that's kind of in the middle of the sentence so let's begin with verse 17 it says since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but uh, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now, here it is. Listen, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him And so your faith and hope are in God. So verse uh, uh, 20 is suggesting that before the foundation of the world, Christ was chosen to come into the world. And a part of that plan for his life is in verse 21. Uh, He was dead. He was buried. He was raised from the dead and God glorified him. So if you take into account all that led up to his execution, you would say uh, a a good Calvinistic theologian would say that was foreordained even before God brought the world into existence. But that's not saying necessarily the same thing as every suffering that you're going through uh, was predestined by God before you were born. Uh, although, if you're going to exalt the sovereignty of God above all other attributes, then uh, the logical conclusion is that God controls every little thing, and everything that you go through in life, he, he decided for you to go through. Um, I don't think this verse is suggesting this, I'm just saying that's a natural consequence, um, logically, that if Christ was... Ordained before the creation of the world, um, so are others as well. I'm not, I don't think there's a connection there personally, but I'm just giving to you a mindset of how some people take this concept of suffering and said, well, you need to gr- uh, bear up and, uh, and, you know, because this is all a part of God's plan for your life. And sometimes um, that comes out in strange ways. And in strange scenarios, um, where uh, someone loses a loved one, and in the midst of their grief, somebody um, will say something like, uh, "Well, you know, I, that was what God wanted for his life," and and that doesn't bring a whole lot of comfort. I, you know, um, you know, and even though we have the hope and assurance of life with god in eternity yet at the same time it doesn't bring any consolation to say you know god makes his choices and hey just grin and bear it and accept it and i think a lot of times christians can hurt other people because there's not empathy there you know um uh, and things like that are sometimes set in in certain settings so on the other side the flip side of this is what's called Arminian theology. So Calvinism comes from the writings of John Calvin. Uh, Arminian theology comes from the theology of a guy by the name of Jacob Arminius. Um, And in Arminian theology, there's the belief that God has control over the world. It's not like the world is spinning out of control. However, uh, the way God allows the world to work is through free will and because of free will, there is some suffering that is inevitable because no one in the course of their life, either themselves or the objects of other people's decisions, makes perfect decisions. There's no one that makes perfect decisions every day, all day, and there's no one that does it their entire life. So consequently, there are things as small as hurt feelings or things as big as um very you know emotional wrecking things that can be ha- that can come as a result of free will. So um, you know, somehow for God's foreknowledge plays into this scenario. Uh, yet at the same time, I think one of the things that we see in Scripture is that evil and suffering grieves God as much as it does us and, um, my own take on this is god never makes evil happen he is actively working in real time to try to prevent evil but he doesn't override our free will in the process so that's assumption number two some thoughts questions comments
1: well i find this all very thought-provoking pastor larry and um me personally in in listening to all of this and my thoughts before this conversation i I personally believe god's in control of everything for a multitude of reasons it's coming to mind
0: yeah i i believe god's in control as well yeah And, and and but how that plays out um in the course of our decision making is where variants of viewpoints might come in. You know, you might have some that think God controls uh, even down to the minutia, uh, where other people might suggest that God is never is off the throne, but uh, He does allow our choices to play out. And uh, as a result of that, um, sometimes when we encounter or experience some pain and suffering. Uh, sometimes God doesn't want that to happen, uh, but he allows it to happen, uh, because he's not going to violate our free will. Does that make sense, Autumn?
1: It does. And one thing that comes to mind when I'm listening to you and thinking of this is, and this may sound kind of funny, is we're assuming that suffering is a negative thing. Hmm.
0: And I I think that's the knee jerk that we have you know, is that suffering is negative. But I I do think, and we could turn to some scripture that suggests that suffering does um, produce certain things that maybe nothing else will do. And God does uh, use those things often to create things uh, that are positive in our life, whether it's things that we learn about ourselves yes. or others and that type of thing you know so other comments yeah okay here's assumption number 3 god can always intervene um so obviously uh in theory god can do whatever he wants because he's god um but if god governs the world with real choices and actual possibilities, then there are times where uh, God does not get in the way of suffering. And, uh, and I think that's kind of what Autumn is hinting at here. Sometimes there are things that can be produced um, from suffering uh, that might not come in any other way. Um, but I think If God wanted to, I mean, if you really wanted a robotic controlled creation, God could prevent uh, uh, these things from happening, and he could intervene at any time that he wants to. But I want to uh, show you a scripture verse, which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, Jesus, um, if he wanted to, could lean into his divine nature, Uh, He could produce miracles, um, you know, and at times he didn't. And here's one example of that. It's in Mark chapter 6, verse 5. In Mark chapter 6, verse 5, we see Jesus is going back to his hometown. And uh, as he goes to the little village of Nazareth, uh, it's interesting what happens. So if you come down to verse 4, it says, Jesus said to them, well, let me let me preface it by this. So Jesus comes into his hometown, and uh, people are wondering about him, obviously. He was a boy that grew up in this little village, and they're asking questions. Uh, so if you go up to uh, verse 2, it says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? So they're recognizing his divine power. Isn't this the carpenter? And of course, that was his trade. Isn't this Mary's son? Yes. Isn't this the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Yes. Aren't his sisters here with us? Yes. (laughs) Then here's an interesting line. And they took offense at him. And they took offense at him. So is this jealousy? Is this envy? What is going on in the hearts of the hometown people? Then Jesus says this in verse four. Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. It's always hard to win over the hometown. Okay. Um, They're the biggest critics. But verse five is fascinating. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. So he did miracles, but the text says he couldn't do miracles there. So he's making some choices. Um, He obviously could have done miracles, but there is the choices of the people and their attitude toward him that's preventing him from doing further miracles uh, and verse 6 says, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. Uh, is there some element here of faith and, and, and the ability of God, in this case, to do miracles through Christ? Is there some element that is related there, uh, an element of faith that produces the possibility? Um, so God's resources are infinite, right? He's God but sometimes he chooses not to coerce human decision or human will and in this case maybe jesus had a desire to do more miracles of healing than what he did but because of the choices of the people in his own hometown that took offense at him prevented that from happening so can god intervene yes does god always intervene no And that's the tension I think we uh, live in many times, is trying to figure those things out and how they relate to one another. You have some thoughts? Okay, we'll move ahead. So maybe one of the results, and this is coming back to you, Autumn, uh, maybe one of the things that suffering does is can make us more human, just like Jesus was human. And what I mean by that is uh, we know that pain is real. It doesn't magically go away. And because Jesus went through pain, because Jesus had to endure suffering, um, we understand that that's a part of the human experience. Even God in the flesh experienced that as well. Now, this does not suggest that um, God doesn't, doesn't want to be of help and intervene. Uh, 1 John 4.16 tells us that God is love, and that love is enfleshed in the person of Christ. Um, but God meets us in our time and space, even in the midst of our anguish. And um, maybe one of the things that happens... In the course of pain is we sense the realness of god that we might not experience any other way Um, and so suffering can produce something very positive and that is maybe when i'm free and clear of any pain or suffering then it's easy to forget god it's easy to just go about my life but when these things come in to our lives all of a sudden my radar is much sharper for my need for god and my need for his strength and maybe when we hurt knowing that god hurts with us it produces something that can't be produced in any other way and um By his wounds, we are healed. And in other words, because he went through the wounds that he went through, maybe I get healing out of his woundedness because he hurts with me. He hurts with you as you go through it too. So um, maybe God borrows from the context of that hurt that we're going through something that will produce something redeem something or uh, or you know produce a positive thing out of a negative thing that we normally would not cooperate with out of our own human nature but um maybe god allows it because that's one of the ways that he does uh govern the world is is through other people and and I think that's what makes people who've gone through some of the things that they have gone through much more apt to help other people. Um, And that is people that can relate to something, they are able to be of more comfort and help to other people because they went through similar circumstances. Thoughts there? So here's a quote. This isn't in your handout. This is uh, by an author called, uh, by name of John Levinson, uh, in his book called The Love of God. He says, but deserved or not, suffering has a powerful capacity to turn sufferers away from the illusions of self-sufficiency and invulnerability, both of which appeal very readily to the successful, but both of which, in the traditional Jewish view, powerfully inhibit the love of God and the strength and healing it brings. Sometimes suffering opens up the heart when nothing else can. Now, I don't think any of us wants that to happen, but I think at times it's inevitable that it does happen. And when it does, what john levinson is saying is that's one way that god's love is felt deeper than than any other time that makes sense to everybody any thoughts there okay so god doesn't always make sense okay um And I think there's a lot of things here, and we're not going to turn to all of these, but you can, in your own leisure, look at some of these scripture verses. So if you think about the Old Testament, Genesis through Nehemiah, which are the historical books, seem to be pretty black and white and deterministic. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 32, when the people of Israel are on the edge of the promised land and they're about ready to go into the promised land. And God says, okay, just keep this in mind. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed and you will be ushered out of the land. We call that exile, which happened. Uh, They're taken into exile by Babylon and uh, they're kept out of their homeland for Uh, many years Um, but that seems to be kind of a simplistic black or white look and when you get then past these historical books in the old testament and you come to the psalms and proverbs and the wisdom literature all of a sudden life isn't as black and white Um, it seems as though these authors um, are acknowledging that life is messy it's unpredictable Uh, at times it makes no sense it's mysterious and all of a sudden um, these writers are taking issue with the storyline that has come before and they begin to interrogate it through their own thoughts and here's some examples we already talked about job a little bit earlier but if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, I mean, you want to you see an author that questions uh, the world order that God has made. I mean, every chapter is questioning. And every time the writer is saying, you know, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, or vaporous, vaporous, all is vaporous. But there are some other passages. And you a, a place that is concentrated with this type of thought are in the book of Psalms. So uh, turn with me to Psalm 73 for a moment. And uh, since we don't have a lot of time left tonight, we're not gonna turn um, uh, to all of these. But uh, in Psalm 79, there is this um, Psalm that is a Psalm, not of David, but of a man named Asaph. And um, what we find is the questioning that we began this study with so notice he's acknowledging in verse one the power of god to govern the nations it says oh god the nations have invaded your inheritance they have defiled your holy temple and they have reduced jerusalem to rubble." so this is after the invasion um, and the destruction that took place at the hands of assyria and later babylon They have given the dead bodies of your servants as food to the birds of the air. I mean, pretty gruesome um, picture that's going on here. So he describes this and jump down to verse five. Here comes the why questions. Um, How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. Um, he, the writer is beginning to question um, why this is happening. Now, keep this in mind. He could have easily said, well, I know the why this is happening. You already said in Deuteronomy 28 through 32, that if we obey you, you'll bless us. If we disobey you, Uh, we will be cursed and we will suffer consequence but that's not in this text it's fascinating that he is moving away from this black and white way the world works and um, and he jumps down in verse nine and cries out to god help us oh god for the glory of your name deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake why should the nations say where is their god so he's it appeals to God's own honor, and he says, "Do something so that your honor will be high in the world and stuff." So you get these uh, type of passages that are often questioning uh, how things are going and why God is allowing these things to happen as they do. And when you come to some conclusions during other parts of the Old Testament you'll see that um a lot of these things are mysterious and that the writers are questioning God we see that in Job he questions God we see this in the Psalms he, they question God on a lot of these things the writer of Ecclesiastes he calls himself the teacher um it, it, he, he's just driven almost to the point of madness over the way things go and um and we can't help it that's just the way the human mind works we question these things and um and and life is more complex than a simplistic formula so um you know you can look at some of these passages yourself if you want to but um the bottom line is there will always be circumstances in life when god does not make sense just and you, you will not be able to come up with an answer no matter how hard you try. Um, and that's the great challenge to all of us is to be able to continue to move ahead when there's no clarity, when there's no clarity. So here's a story. There uh, was a Jesuit uh, philosopher um, that decided to go and help Mother Teresa for three months and of course mother Teresa helped the the dying and um and at the end of three months um he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do uh with the rest of his life how he was going to invest the rest of his life so he goes to mother Teresa and he says mother Teresa will you pray that I have clarity on this And she goes, no, I won't pray that you have clarity on this. He goes, well, why wouldn't you pray that I have clarity on this? She said, because the minute that you have clarity, you will not trust God. And so she said, I will pray that you have the ability to trust God, even when you don't have clarity. And so this guy named John, um, he he. Then says to Mother Teresa, says, well, it seems like you have clarity. And uh, Mother Teresa says, I've never had a day of clarity in my entire life. But I choose to live in trust. And that's why she did her life work. And I think that's kind of what happens in so many of the stories that we read in the scripture. The ability to trust beyond clarity. And um, that'll always be a challenge for all of us because we always want to ask and have an answer to the question, why? Maybe a better way of of approaching this is just three postures. So we've talked about three assumptions. Maybe here's three postures that we can take, okay? Number one, we can say, Jesus, you fix it because I can't. We realize our limitations. Number two is Jesus, please join me in my suffering because I need you. And the old footprints poem comes into play here. When, you know, I only saw one foot set of footprints. Well, God, why did you leave me? And, and, and God says, that those were the times that I carried you. Okay. Uh, then third posture is Jesus, I want to experience your pain, which includes mine and the suffering of others. Um, that was the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, that I might know Christ and his sufferings. That's a fascinating statement. Um, And I I think none of us have the courage to pray that type of prayer many times because we have enough issues and pain, uh, uh, you know, without that. So Anyways, but those are kind of three postures that we can take toward this. So here's how I want to kind of conclude tonight. So what do we do when we are full of questions and we are asking God why? The best thing I think that we can do is lay our wounds upon the wounds of Christ. And what what I mean by that is to lament, uh, to cry, to grieve is a part of the human experience. And um, we see even Jesus wept at the side of his, when he came to the tomb of his, excuse me, his friend Lazarus. But you can read portions of the scripture uh, that are dedicated to lament. There's a whole book in the Old Testament that's called the Book of Lamentations. And we actually did a study in that on a Wednesday night a couple of years ago um about lamentations and all that was going on in the heart of the author when he looked at all the uh, devastation uh, that happened around him and his his people uh you'll notice here i put lament is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages god in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our trouble and um And I think one of the things the Psalms tell us to do is to just be honest with God. Don't, don't try to be pious. Just be honest with God. God, I am so ticked off, you know, that this happened to me and why is okay. God can, God can handle it. You know, it's okay to ask question why it's just also understanding that you might not have clarity. Um, And, you know, what you're going to do with it is up to you, I guess. Uh, Are you going to trust even when you don't have clarity? So I'm going to give you one last quote, and then um, we'll see if you have any closing comments, questions, or whatever. So um, this comes from another author. Uh, Her name is Latasha Morrison. She wrote a book called Be the Bridge. She asked the question, what is the purpose of lament? It allows us to connect with and grieve the reality of our sin and suffering. It draws us to repentant connection with God in that suffering. Lament seeks God as comforter, healer, restorer, and redeemer. Somehow, the act of lament reconnects us with God and leads us to hope and redemption. So I don't know if you've experienced that at any time in your life or not. But um, I think that's something to keep in mind uh, and to to help ask others to help remind you of those things. Because I think when we're going through suffering, it's hard to think of those things ourselves. I think sometimes we need other people to remind us of it. So that's what I have for us tonight. Do you have some thoughts, comments, questions, anything that on your mind?
1: Well, I've been thinking of the story of um, David and Bathsheba and um, the Hittite and uh, then Solomon. Mm-hmm. As this all played out, it kind of encompasses all the assumptions and everything else you were talking about tonight.
0: Okay. Zone um, free will. I, I'm. Um, can you refresh my memory? What? Um, um, so, you, you, Ben Solomon. What are you referring to there?
1: Well, Solomon was had to be born. He was from the union of David and Bathsheba. Yeah, but uh-huh. the younger brother of that union. Uh-huh. The originally died
0: mm-hmm. okay yeah and right
1: had to suffer david uh-huh. and had to suffer but it was because david exercised his own free will in going after Bathsheba, and then she complied but i it just seems to incorporate all of it because mm-hmm. um Bath, Solomon had to be born because he was a great king. You know, he's written about he was there in the lineage and God would have worked it out some other way had David been patient.
0: Yeah.
1: But David jumped the gun and um used his free will and then he suffered and had to pay the consequences you know we have consequences for every decision we make good and bad Mm -hmm. but god can intervene Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so i i I thought it was a good big picture that's
0: good that's good i think one of the things that you you just said is interesting and that is you know um when choices are made um, there's consequences and of them, but when decisions might be made that are the opposite of the decision that was made, God might, uh, work the same details or the same destiny out, but in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so, uh, that's an interesting insight to keep in mind. Um, and it, it, you know, it's one of those things that gives us, I think, hope and assurance. Uh, that in the end um, God gets his way (laughs) that's what I'm trying to say is um, in the end God will get his way but how it's traveled what path is taken can be different for every person and that might be dependent upon the free will that we have any other thoughts comments questions Well, hang in there. It's a heavy topic, and there's some heavy things to think about in relationship. As I mentioned at the beginning, um, this whole topic is called theodicy. That is, what do you do with why God allows evil in the world? So we will not be the last people to think of this topic because it's been thought about for centuries. So, um, And yet, I don't think any of us have full clarity on it. And I don't think anyone will have full clarity on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mark just said there's good things that happen, and you don't know why either. Uh, Many times we don't have clarity there either. Yeah. So, well, um, we'll close up our time together and uh, we'll see what next week holds on this topic. Okay. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. All right, have a good night everybody. Take care.
1: Okay, bye
0: bye. bye.